Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City by author Matthew Desmond. We are beginning chapter 24, the final chapter of the book, but we will have an epilogue episode after this. And then the plan is to do a wrap-up episode after we finish this, and I've been bad with doing those on a timely manner, so <clears throat> excuse me if that comes out a little late. But... As we've been doing, I want to ask people to please share this episode from whatever platform you're listening to it on. Share it on Facebook, share it on Twitter, share it on Instagram, wherever you can share it. And then I would also encourage people to listen to previous episodes if you have not yet done so and listen to future episodes. If by the time you get a hold of this, there are future episodes out. Uh, we had a brain fart there. I just had a... A brain freeze, what was I? Oh, yeah, we put these episodes out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Anchor, YouTube, Facebook. So wherever you're listening to it at from around these, the the internet, please share it on whatever social media platform that you frequent. Okay. Chapter 24, Can't Win for Losing. When Arlene dialed the number, she gave Jory her, quote, here we go, end quote, look. A landlord, number 90, had left her a voicemail saying to give him a call. The message was from the landlord's son, actually, who had been the one to show Arlene the unit. He was in his early 20s with a backwards cap and a braided ponytail. Quote, call me Pana, end quote, he said. Arlene remembered living in his father's building in 2003 in a two-bedroom unit that back then rented for $535. Now that same unit went for $625. So when Arlene applied this time, it was for a $525 one-bedroom unit. What a difference six years could make. The phone rang, and Arlene thought about what she had told Pana. She had lied about her income, saying she received $250 a month in child support, but had been straight about her evictions. Mainly, she had begged him. She told him she'd take the unit before looking at it. She didn't much consider the neighborhood or the condition of the place. Quote, Whatever I get is whatever I get, end quote, she figured. She had said, quote, I'm in a shelter, please, end quote. Panna answered, quote, yeah, so we checked you out. Everything was what you said it was, so we're going to work with you, end quote. Eileen jumped up and let out a muffled, quote, yes, end quote. Quote, but you know, there's no room for error here, end quote. Quote, I know, end quote. Quote, you're on a fixed income, so you need to pay your rent and not get into trouble. End quote. Arlene thanked Pana. Getting off the phone, she thanked Jesus. She smiled. When she smiled, she looked like a different person. The press had loosened its grip. From landlords, she had heard 89 no's, but one yes. Jory accepted his mother's high five. He and his brother would have to switch schools. Jory didn't care. He switched schools all the time. Between 7th and 8th grades, he had attended five different schools when he went to Dahl. At the domestic violence shelter alone, Jory had racked up 17 consecutive absences. Arlene saw school as a higher-order need, something to worry about after she found a house. Plus, Jory was a big help. He would bound down the street and memorize numbers off rent signs or watch your fires when Arlene left with her house notepad. He was good for a laugh, too. When things looked bleak, he would try to make his mama smile by freestyling, badly, as the city rolled past their bus window. 
hey, 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 looking for me a house to move in. That was my old school. That's my old block. That's my old gas station. We looking for a house. If Jory worried about finding a home, he never showed it. Jafar's cried when they left the shelter, holding on to the remote control car and stuffed Elmo a social worker had given him as parting gifts. Quote, I can't look, end quote, he said as the car pulled away. Aline rubbed her boy's head and told him he should be happy living the, leaving the shelter. Jafaris didn't understand why. It was quiet and warm, and there were toys there. <clears throat> Their new apartment building was at the busy intersection of Teutonia and Silver Spring in a more industrial part of the north side. Aline climbed the steps to the third-floor apartment while Jory and Jafaris took a giggling ride in the creaking elevator. Inside, the walls were freshly painted, and the gray carpet was thick and clean. There was an air conditioning unit and fixtures on every light. There was a small kitchen with light wood cupboards, cupboards, each one of which had a handle. The hot water worked. Arlene took her time inspecting the place, but couldn't find anything wrong. She opened a window and looked out over the cars driving by an R Steel and Heating's distribution center across the street. She felt, quote, good but tired, end quote. Once all the trash bags of clothes and boxes of canned food were moved in, Arlene sat on the floor. She found a soft bag and leaned back on it. She felt at peace, at home. It had been two months since her eviction hearing with Sharina. Jory sat down beside Arlene and pitched his head into her shoulder. Jafaris followed, lying on Arlene's legs and resting his head on her belly. They stayed like that for a long time. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. Hmm. Here, let's continue reading. After a few quiet days, Arlene learned that Terrence, everyone just called him T, was dead. T was one of the only people Arlene still kept in touch with on Larry's side of the family. His cousin P.A., whom Arlene also loved, had shot him. During an argument, T had hit P.A. over the head with an axe handle, and P.A. went to get a gun. Before he returned, he called T's mother, saying that he was going to kill her son. Then he did. T's death interrupted Arlene's life in the usual way. She wept for him and reminisced with old friends and arranged for Jafaris to stay over at his old foster mother's home during the funeral. He was too young to go, Arlene thought. Some people were talking about going to Ponderosa Steakhouse after the funeral. Those who couldn't afford it donated plasma so they could have a place at the table. When Eileen and Jory visited T Street Memorial near Fond du, Lac, Fond du Lac Avenue on the northwest side, she straightened the flowers and stuffed animals. It was a handsome memorial adorned with a large cream ribbon, poems, silk roses, and several bouquets of white and yellow daisies, carnations, and alistromeria. Eileen walked to T's house and stood on the steps, walked back to the memorial, then walked to the steps again. Quote, Time is going fast, ain't it? End quote, Jory said. Quote, I bet when we get down to the funeral, time will be going slow. End quote. On the morning of the funeral, Arlene put on dark jeans, a rockaway t-shirt, and a blue hoodie. As she and Jory descended the stairs on their way out, they met Pino on his way up. Quote, I need to talk with you. End quote, he said. Quote, about two nights ago. End quote. Arlene's mind raced. 
That was when she had called 911 because Jafaris was having an asthma attack. Quote, this is a nuisance building, end quote, Connor said. Quote, we can't have police coming up in here, end quote. Quote, just the fire department and ambulance came, end quote, Arlene said. Quote, police don't come for an asthma attack, end quote. Still, that wasn't the only issue. A neighbor had complained about one of Arlene's friends knocking on his door and asking for weed. Trisha, she was babysitting the boys at the time. And Jafaris had been caught dropping something out their third-story window. Quote, if things don't get better, we are going to ask you to go. End quote. Outside, on her way to New Pitt's mortuary, Arlene shook her head. Quote, if it ain't one thing, it's another. End quote, she said. Besides trying to stay in Pana's good graces, Arlene was having a problem with her food stamps. She had submitted the necessary change of address form, but there was some holdup. Then there was the problem of getting everything out of storage. She needed to find a way to move her things fast or, come the first of the month, she would fall behind on payments. Either that or, for, or fall behind in rent. And now T was gone and, in a way, so was PA. Poverty could pile on. Living it often meant steering through gnarled thickets of interconnected misfortunes and trying not to go crazy. <clears throat> there were moments of calm, but life on balance was facing one crisis after another. At least Arlene had a home, a floor of her own to sleep on. Arlene hesitated in front of the door at Pitts. Built in the 1930s, the funeral home on West Capitol Drive was a Northside institution. Fashioned in the French Revival style, the land and stone building was adorned with an octagonal stair tower. Thin, elegant windows, a deep maroon interest canopy stretching across the sidewalk, and steep roof lines with the towering chimney. Jory drew up next to his mother, and they walked in together. The sanctuary was packed. Teenagers and children huddled together wearing personalized shirts with T's face or the face of someone else who had been cut down young. Grandmothers and grandfathers were there in cream and brown suits with matching felt hats. Big C, T's brother, was up front in a crisp blue t-shirt with matching bandana and sunglasses. Uncle Link showed up with a half-finished cigarette behind his ear. A towering man walked down the aisle slowly as his wife leaned her face on his back and wept. Arlene took a seat at the rear, reflecting her status in the family. T looked good, dressed in a long-sleeved black t-shirt and a new Oakland Raiders cap. He had almost made 40. The preacher looked down on him. Quote, It seems like every time I come over here, I see someone who looks like me lying in a casket, going too young. End quote, he said, shaking his head above a fat Windsor knot. Then he boomed, raspy and impassioned. Quote, what has happened to the love amongst us? What has happened to the concern? Can't nobody help us but us, end quote. Quote, go on, end quote. Quote, that's right, end quote. Quote, that was my baby, end quote. After it was over, Arlene joined Uncle Link and a few others outside. Someone handed her a can of old English malt liquor, and she poured it out for tea, making pretty amber circles in the snow. At the repast, the family ate fried chicken on bread, greens, and mac and cheese in the basement of the Wisconsin African American Women's Center on 30th and Vliet. Through it all, Arlene was embraced and kissed and welcomed. She felt held by her people. 
They weren't much help if you needed a place to stay or money to keep the heat on, but they knew how to throw a funeral. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme once again in this chapter. So let's take a moment to reflect. So, again, the violence is something that is an overwhelming theme in this portion that we just read. It's been something that has been a regularity throughout this book. It's something that was a regularity throughout the book High Rises as well, which sort of spoke about poverty in the inner city of Chicago and specifically in spoke spoke about the the living conditions in the pro- housing projects of Cabrini Green in Chicago. And one of the regular regular themes was violence within that. And that is what happens when poverty is concentrated in these inner cities or in areas in cities is that it breeds violence. It breeds uh, desperation. It breeds stress. It breeds paranoia, all of these other things. And a lot of times some people feel the, some of those emotions. They, they manifest those emotions in acts of violence. And so we see here that that happening. And then one of the things we see here as well is the the trauma and the the mental toll, the mental burden that that violence takes on the people who are maybe removed from the violence. They're not the ones who are committing the violence or having the violence done to them, but they know the people who are committing the violence or they know the people who are being the victims of the violence. And it's a very difficult thing to explain to somebody who's never experienced it, uh, what it's like for somebody to be hearing about somebody being killed. Uh, hearing about somebody being murdered and uh, how it sort of just alters your your reality in such a, a drastic measure. And then to have that compounded by her trying to make ends meet, her son, you know, we read about how her son switched schools between, in two grades, he switched, went to five different schools. And so you you just see all of the the mental anguish and the mental toll and the mental burden the psychological baggage that uh, has built up over 286 pages worth of information on uh, not just Arlene, but on a multitude of different people that we've uh, we've encountered. And it's just a reminder of, you know, you never know what somebody is dealing with. All of these, you know, somebody, however many people are being evicted inside a, at a courtroom, you don't know the specific uh, experiences, the unique experience, each is, experiences each person has had. Uh, that has led them to not being able to get their rent paid or has led them to not being able to be on time to work or that has, you know, led them to, you know, a bevy of other things. And I just think that one of the biggest gains I get from reading these, uh, these books is I get every time I get more and more empathetic to people's individual experiences. I get more and more understanding to people's individual experiences who are caught up in, uh, all of these systems and, and cycles that exist in our society. So let's continue reading. The next day, no one was calling, and Arlene got back to making her apartment a home. She enrolled the boys in new schools. She got her stuff out of storage and hung pictures on the wall. A neighbor gave her a couch. Arlene's old apartment on 13th Street was usually messy because cleaning didn't do it much good. What with this cracked windows, ravaged carpet, and broken bathroom. But Panna's father kept a nice place. It could look respectable if Arlene kept it nice. She did. Over the sink, she wrote a little note to Jory. Quote, if you don't clean up after yourself, we are going to have problems. End quote. On the counter, she set out a candle for St. Jude, 
patron saint of difficult cases. When people saw Arlene's apartment, they would say, quote, your house so pretty, end quote. Some even asked if they could move in. Arlene would feel proud and say no. Jory tried to adjust to his new school. He was technically in eighth grade, but so far behind that he might as well have been in seventh. Excuse me. It was frustrating. And on top of that, T's death had unsettled him. It had come out that when PA called T's mother, he had called from Larry's phone. The police questioned Larry, but released him. It, t- it still twisted Jory up inside. Why was his daddy with PA that night? Exactly two weeks after the funeral, a teacher snapped at Jory and he snapped back. He kicked the teacher in the shin and ran home. The police followed him there, the teacher having called them. When Panna heard about it, he made Arlene a deal. If she left by Sunday, he'd return her rent and security deposit. If she didn't, he would keep her money and evict her. Children didn't shield families from eviction. They exposed them to it. Arlene took the deal, and Panna was nice enough to help her move. She poured her dishes out of the clean cupboards and took her decorations off the walls. When Arlene had finished stuffing everything in the trash bags and recycle boxes, Panna loaded his truck and drove Arlene's things right back to storage. Arlene had lost a pretty house and felt miserable about it. Quote, why it's like I got a curse on me, end quote, she wondered. Quote, I can't win for losing, no matter how hard I try, end quote. Arlene called Trisha and told her how angry the landlord was when he found out she had been going door to door asking for a joint. It really was the police visit that did her in, but years of hardship had taught Arlene how to ask for help, and one particularly effective method involved addressing a person's guilt, framing things so that someone looked like a real bastard if he or she turned you down. Quote, the least you can do is to help me if you're the one that got me put out, end quote. Trisha told Arlene to come on over. There was a new street memorial on 13th Street. Jafaris noticed it. Quote, someone got shot there, end quote. He said in his six-year-old voice. When they arrived at the old address, the boys ran up to Trisha's apartment to see Little. But Little was dead. A car had ground him into the pavement. When Trisha told Jory, he tried to keep himself from crying. He paced around Trisha's apartment and sleeve attacked the snot slot. Excuse me. He paced around Trisha's apartment and sleeve attacked the snot sliding from his nose. He found a foam mannequin's head. There was always random stuff like that lying around Trisha's place. Jory knelt over the head and turned it face up. He hit the face with a closed fist. He kept hitting it. Soon he was grunting and his punches flew faster and harder and louder until Arlene and Trisha screamed at him to stop. Trisha didn't hide the fact that she had begun turning tricks. She couldn't even if she wanted to. Men would just show up and Trisha would take them into her bedroom telling Arlene, quote, look, I'm about to get us some cigs, end quote. Trisha would emerge later with eight or ten dollars. Once, Jory walked in to find a man in bed with Trisha, his pants on the floor next to them and her lipstick smeared. In crowded houses, there were no separate spaces, and children quickly learned the ways of adults. Trisha kept it at even after her new boyfriend, Trisha kept at it even after her new boyfriend moved in. Arlene sensed that he encouraged her to. She also figured it was the boyfriend who told Trisha to raise Arlene's monthly rent to $150 from $60. 
The man went by a string of nicknames. Trisha called him Sonny. He was a 30-year-old man who had just served five years for selling drugs. Skinny, with a smooth walk, he bragged about having nine children by five different women and joked about taking a spatula to Trisha. When Trisha got money from John's or her payee, Sonny, Sonny would take it. If Trisha called after Sonny on the street, he would ignore her and later hiss, quote, don't call me babe in public, end quote. Trisha would ball up under the covers with her clothes on or sit on a windowsill and light a cigarette, its smoke coming alive in the breeze like a raging spirit that had only seconds to live. Sonny's parents and one of his sisters moved in soon after Arlene did. Trisha's small one-bedroom apartment, which was in bad shape to begin with, began to buckle under the weight of eight people. The toilet broke and the kitchen sink started leaking. The leak got so bad that the floor filled with water that would ripple when Jory stepped in it. He spread old clothes on the ground to sop it up. Quote, it looks like slums, end quote, Arlene said. Quote, kitchen all nasty, floor all nasty, bathroom, end quote. She thought about what to do next. Quote, what's beyond this? What's to come? It can't get no worse, end quote. Then a Child Protective Services caseworker showed up asking for, quote, Miss Bell, end quote. It was not Arlene's usual caseworker, but one she never met before. She knew Arlene was living there. Sharina didn't even know that. And she knew about the toilet in the sink. The caseworker opened the refrigerator and grimaced. Arlene pointed out that it was the end of the month. She had gone shopping, but there were eight mouths to feed. The CPS worker says she'd be back. Arlene became nauseous with anxiety and secretly suspected Trisha had reported her. She needed to escape, somehow. So she called JP. Her dependable cousin picked her up and rolled her a blunt. It helped. So he rolled another. Quote, JP always tries to make me forget about all my stress. End quote. Arlene said the next day. Finally, spring had come to the city. The snow had melted, leaving behind wet streets edged in soggy garbage. On the same day, the whole ghetto realized there was no longer a need to brace and tighten when stepping outside. People overreacted without regrets. Boys went shirtless and girls put lotion and sun on their legs long before it was actually hot. Chairs and laughter returned to porches. Children found their jump ropes. Arlene and her boys had spent the past several days alone in Trisha's apartment. She relished the peace and quiet. Trisha and Sonny and Sonny's people had disappeared. Arlene didn't give it any thought, figuring they were visiting kin or friends. But on May 1st, movers stormed Trisha's apartment. They came with gloved hands, ready to work, but ended up looking at each other bewildered, trying to figure out what they should pack and what they should trash. Belinda, Trisha's payee, had contracted the men. She would later come check on their progress, pulling up in a new Ford Expedition XLT with temporary license plates from the dealership. Chris had been released and came by the apartment looking for Trisha. Belinda didn't think her client was safe on 13th Street anymore. Arlene stared, Arlene stared out the front window. Quote, this is too much for me, end quote, she mumbled. She had stayed with Trisha for a month and a half. Jafaris came home from school with braids on one side of his head. He watched the movers lugging out mattresses and dressers and shoving handfuls of clothes into black trash bags. To this scene, he had no reaction. He did not cry or ask a question or run to check on a special possession. He simply turned around and went outside. They stayed a while with Arlene's sister, 
wanted $200 a month, even though Arlene and the boys didn't have their own room. During that time, Arlene lost everything she had in storage, her glass dining table, the armoire and bedroom dresser she had acquired at 13th Street, her air conditioning units. She had given Boosie the money to pay it, but he lost it or stole it. Then Arlene's welfare case was closed because she missed three appointments. The letters had once again been mailed to an address she was evicted from. Quote, it won't stop for nothing, end quote, she said. Arlene eventually found another rundown apartment on 34th and Clark by the Master Lock factory. Quote, maybe this will be the end of it, end quote, she told herself. Arlene found enough stability to start looking for jobs, but not long after an interview at Arby's, she and her boys were robbed. Two men ran into her apartment and stuck a pistol in Jory's face. Arlene's caseworker told her the place was no longer safe, causing Arlene to flee once again to a shelter. Rents continued to rise. Arlene's next apartment took $600 of her $628 monthly check. It was only a matter of time before her lights were shut off. When that finally happened, Jory went to live with Larry, and Child Protective Services placed Jafaris with Arlene's sister. Arlene began to unravel. Quote, just my soul is messed up, end quote, she said. Quote, sometimes I find my body trembling or shaking. I'm tired, but I can't sleep. I'm fitting to have a nervous breakdown. My body is trying to shut down, end quote. Arlene stood back up. She borrowed money from her Aunt Marva to get her lights back on, and her boys came back. She took another apartment on Tamarack Street near Tabernacle Community Baptist Church. This apartment had no stove or refrigerator, but they boiled hot dogs in a crock pot or went to St. Ben's to eat beef stroganoff with the winos. Sometimes Arlene would head out to a food pantry and Jafaris would ask, quote, will you give me some cakes, mama? End quote. Arlene would smile and say, quote, you know I'll try if they have them. End quote. Jory had been thinking about his future. He wanted to become a carpenter so he could build Arlene a house. Quote, people be not thinking that I can do this, but you watch, end quote, he said. Arlene smiled at Jory. Quote, I wish my life were different, end quote, she said. Quote, I wish that when I be an old lady, I can sit back and look at my kids and they be grown. And they, you know, become something, something more than me. And we'll all be together and be laughing. We be remembering stuff like this and be laughing at it. End quote. And that brings us to the end of Evicted by Matthew Desmond, Poverty and Profit in the American City. That is the last page of the last chapter. There is an epilogue, which we will uh, dive into on the next episode. This epilogue looks pretty lengthy. Uh, but my takeaways from the last passage that we just read is just the the toll that all of this is taking on these children, uh, the the psychological trauma that will be with them for for their whole lives, for the rest of their lives, and how many young black children uh, ha go through this experience. How how many young black children have this as their reality? Uh, how many how many people who can't overcome some of these things and how difficult it is to 
regularly be having to pick up the pieces and trying to put the puzzle back together and just to turn around and, and see the, the pieces be uh, be scattered abroad again. And just the, the strength and the determination that uh, that the people in these stories have. I think a lot of times we personify strength and determination and uh, and all of those perseverance and those type of things with people who have become rich or people who have become successful or people who have uh, degrees in college and things like that. And a lot of times those same words are not used to describe people who are dealing with poverty and to continue to live when you are living in poverty takes perseverance. It takes patience. It takes, uh, it takes all of those same things that, it takes for people to uh, be successful and to be rich. Uh, I think a lot of times one of the things that is falsely or or misrepresented is this idea that it's harder to succeed than it is to fail, or it's harder to become rich than it is to be poor. And in reality, there's just, it's just a different type of difficult. And for some people, they're born into being rich. And so it doesn't even take any type of difficulty for them to attain that as opposed to people who are born into poverty, who it takes difficulty every day of their life, uh, just to survive. Uh, and so that's, that really stands out to me from the last passages we read, thinking about the, uh, Jory and Jafaris and, uh, what their, their, their lives have been like up to the point that we begin reading in the book and then what their lives uh, will be after the things we read in this book. And uh, again, this is that all of these books are very, they're very heavy for me personally. Uh, I don't just only, I don't just read these books and talk about this. And then I go on with my life and I don't think about none of these things. or don't review none of these things. Uh, my life has become centered around these issues. My life has become centered around understanding these issues better, understanding the aspects and dynamics of these issues better, understanding the origins of these issues better. So that way I can be better equipped to, to struggle against these things. Uh, the saying my people perish from a, a lack of knowledge is something that uh, it's very commonly used in the uh, black community, and it's one that uh, I believe is very relevant to the circumstances that black people in Rockford specifically, Winnebago County specifically, are in now. It is a, a lack of knowledge, a, a lack, besides just a lack of knowledge, a lack of information to even be able to develop into knowledge. And I do believe that doing these readings for me personally, and I hope for the people listening is the first step to attaining that information. And then what you begin to do with that information, I believe is what develops into, into knowledge. And, and that creates uh, education and that gets you into the process of becoming educated about a thing. Uh, so remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. And I will holler at you tomorrow when we read through the epilogue of Evicted by Matthew Desmond.